What would you rather have? An ally or a friend? This is one of the central questions that Rinku and I explore in this episode of the podcast. Rinku Sen right now is the executive director of the Narrative Initiative. And she has been one of the foremost thinkers of race in the country for the last three decades. She used to run a place called Race Forward before it was called Race Forward. She was doing this work on race long before the most recent racial uprising. She really is one of the leading voices on this central American concern. I know it's not exclusively ours, but it is defining to our identity as a country. And in exploring this question, I think she opens up a whole lot of possibility for us. Uh, I don't want to get ahead of the conversation. But I can tell you that for me, friendship has been almost a religion. And that the question of whether I'd rather have an ally in my struggle or a friend is a question that touches some of my deepest and most dearly held beliefs. It opens up new possibility. I really think you're going to enjoy this wide-ranging conversation because we talk about so much more. We've known each other for almost two decades. We've been in these movements doing this work. Um, and I think we get to some really, really meaningful places. I know you're going to enjoy it. Give it a listen and let me know what you think. My name is Gibran Rivera, if you don't know me yet. I am a coach. I am a guide. I'm a facilitator and a teacher. And... With this podcast, I am inviting you into a decentralized conversation with remarkable leaders, remarkable people who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. I know that your attention is invaluable, and I'm really grateful that you're giving us an ear. Enjoy, share, and participate. Rinko, great to see you. Great, great to see you again. Um, where do I start? I've known you for a long time. Um, we've known each other for a long time. We've formed a friendship. We have seen each other grow and change. Mm -hmm. um, you are known by many hats that you've worn. And I'd love to hear some about the hat you're wearing right now, but maybe I can I can start by saying that when I met you, you were leading what later what later became race forward, and that you're riding on race uh, was momentous and shaped a lot of movement thinking long before this latest wave of reawakening, right? Like I feel like our entire relationship with race in this country is like uprising, it matters, it defines all kinds of moves. Mm -hmm. And then somehow like the, the regressive forces take over again. And, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, so long before this, this latest uprising, you were you were really leading the way, giving us language for contending with racial justice. So I just wanted to acknowledge your both your writing and your strategic work and your organization or leadership around all of that, and maybe even shout out uh, 
what is still the Chuck Foundation for Public Education, yeah. which was, I think, how we actually met. I think we were both yes. members of that. I'm pretty so, sure that's yeah. how we met too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a little bit about who you've been. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're up to now? Yeah, I'd be so happy to. Um, I left Race Forward in 2017, and at the end of 2020, I accepted a position as executive director of Narrative Initiative. Um, Our mission there is to help social movements, their leaders, their members, build the power that it takes to move big ideas through collections of stories, stories that we create through our action or inaction, and stories that we tell about the things we created, the things our ancestors created, the things our children and grandchildren are going to create. So so it's super fun work, like the best fun I've had at work ever, uh, because um, we see ourselves as organizers. We are organizers who um, want to build narrative power to go along with the political and economic and disruptive and cultural power that um, that movements have to have. They have to have this kind of power too. And um, and we're a small team of fifteen working all over the country who help people do that. That's awesome. That is awesome. And I can't, it, it's been, it's, it's a, an awareness that has been brewing in, um, among those who want to change the world, who want more justice, who want social movements to succeed over the last number of years. It's been, it's just kind of catching fire. You know, just today, I'm going to share two things with you. Um, just today, I sent out a, a note to a couple of hundred men that are part of the Better Men Project. Mm-hmm. And we have been, generally, we've been just reading a book, like a section at a time. But the first thing that we read before this book, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, was uh, a piece by Adrian Mary Brown on on relinquishing the patriarchy. So today I was like, we're going to pause on the book, even though it's great, because I read this brilliant piece by uh, a thinker called Alex Benier. And what I like about him is his, well, from what you might call the, the hetero, heterodox world, world, meaning he's not like on the progressive pole, and he's not on the right-wing pole. He's just very intentionally People that are very intentionally trying to like dance in between. And, mm-hmm. and it's a place that I'm trying to get to myself. You mm-hmm. know, like I just feel way more freedom in that than in like the binds of ideology. Long introduction to what I'm trying to say. <laughs> he wrote this piece where he's looking at a movie, mm-hmm. uh, The Banshees of Inisherin. Yes, I just watched saw it recently. Yep. A game, right? As in gaming, because it's game. I'm not a gamer, but there's stories, mm-hmm. right? Which I think is called The Gods of War. Mm-hmm. And a TV show, which is called The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. And he's il- il- illustrating how each one of them have a take on masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right? Some which, one which might be more like, 
the progressive idea of like we are hopeless and like and one is like no actually like there's a there's a holy masculine that is needed and like something in between but like i bring it all up to say narrative form cultural form Mm -hmm. as a way to get at what is unsettled in men who want to be good in a world that is still defined by patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what we say every time, every Better Man Project call, I'm like, we're very clear about what toxic masculinity is. <laughs> We've done it. We're told what it is, right? And if we want to be a good guy, you got to just take your masculinity and turn it down a couple notches. <laughs> and so what we're trying to do is like, how is there such a thing as conscious masculinity? And you know? an mm-hmm. alternative to turning it down, mm-hmm. which is remaining masculine if, if you identify as mm-hmm. man in a way that is helpful to the world and the fact mm-hmm. that he's taking narrative forms mm-hmm. to get at this question i feel like re-emphasizes to me the importance of your work yeah um i mean the thing is that we're all actually narrating all the time through our conversation through the things we do um, and, you know, human beings are natural storytellers and story lovers. Our brains for a whole set of neurological reasons and evolutionary reasons have, have, um, learned to, uh, accept lessons in the form of stories best to accept morals in the form of stories, um, better than we accept them in the form of facts or in the, in, you know, more didactic forms. Um, and, um, and so we're natural lovers of stories, but we're also natural tellers of stories. And, um, we are obviously, because we live natural creators of stories. So what our work is about at Narrative Initiative is getting people to see that they're narrating all the time. Um, Ultimately, we have a vision of, um, you know, equipping millions of everyday narrators because that's the, that's our greatest resource, you know, getting, getting our stories onto Netflix or CNN or Amazon. Um, I'm always thrilled when that happens. That's really, really important, but we don't control those platforms. Um, we, uh, we control ourselves though. (laughs) That's like, that's our first control. Um, our first means of production, so to speak, is our our thoughts and our voices. So, and our art, our voices, you know, broadly broadly considered. So, so you know, it's possible to tell a beautiful story that has um, a lesson that actually isn't helping us so much change the way that, for example, Americans think about borders or right. who belongs here and who doesn't um we we can tell beautiful stories of immigrants that um maybe because it's like a heroic individual single immigrant story it actually hides the structural um barriers to immigration or or the the structural things and the systemic things that make 
migration so difficult, so um, deadly in many cases, and still so attractive <laughs> to right. so many people and um, things like that. So, so we want to be not just creating stories through, let's say, movement tactics and telling sto- be- stories beautifully through our art, we we need to grapple with the ideas, yeah. and um, and we need to be um, not looking to the right wing for how best to do that, because they're an entirely different movement from yeah. us. They have different goals, they have different resources, they have different norms, um, but that doesn't mean that we don't have ourselves the means yeah. to. Um, make our ideas dominant in the society. We have done it before and we will do it again. And um, people are doing it uh, to varying degrees right now all the time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so much of the so much of the backlash, right, uh, from the from the right wing right now, I think I think comes specifically because we have succeeded in Changing some like fundamental stories, you know, and, and it's, it's just terrifying, right? Just terrifying for for people that want to imagine a fantastical past where there wasn't oppression and white folks were all Christians doing everything right. Like, like I would say, like you know, I'm, I've often been curious about. What would it take, maybe if it were helpful at all, right? What would it take for people that want goodness and justice to be able to gather 10,000 people in a building week after week to sing together, mm-hmm. to to form small groups that helps them with their finances or with their mm-hmm. marriages, right? Like mm-hmm. It's like the megachurch experience, right? And like I'm not sure what it would take. I know that we don't have the advantage of a 2,000-year-old meme that promises eternal salvation, right? So when I hear you say we can't do it that way. We have 2,000-year-old memes, and um, we can appropriate any other memes that we want to appropriate. Um, There's a lot of debate over the meaning of Jesus's uh, presence in the world, right. you know, the big world. And, um, you know, that's one of the arenas that I don't think we should give up. I like it. Um, I like all it. of our, all, every spiritual tradition in the world has something for us. We can decide to claim it or not. But, um, I, I don't think that, um, uh, I don't accept that the dominant versions of Christianity, for example, or um, um, Hinduism, where I, which is the tradition I was raised in, yeah. um, can't change. That's <laughs> can't, right. That's right. Can't yeah. Uh, shift. Yeah, what we have, what we have here now, um, is Christian nationalism, right? Yeah. Which is very, which is its own thing. Um, I, I'll, I'll say I want to share some thoughts, including that now being in a being in a in a blended family relationship, mm-hmm. right? My love has teenagers, and then my 
my siblings also have teenagers. My my son is still eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing to witness the way they it's like the way in which they story themselves is much more obvious because it's much younger, right? So they're literally taking a persona and trying it on. They don't think that's what they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. But they're trying it on, and mm-hmm. then. Because it's it's what they're trying on because they saw it somewhere and it's attractive mm-hmm. to them. Mm-hmm. They actually literally gotta go around asserting, right? Like <laughs> I am not like, <laughs> happy and jolly like you. Right. You know, like I this is who I am, you know, I don't like this and I, I am angry about that. <laughs> and it's just literally a storying of ourselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. in the healthiest of situations. We try a couple on, and then we realize that that can be foolish, and that there can be you can definitely tell a healthier story. Yeah, I mean, well, you are not asserting it. You know what I mean? That you yeah. can just be it. You know, in some way. Yeah, I'm just thinking about how you know when I was a kid, we moved quite often. We came to the states in '72, and then before 1980, I think we had moved four times. Uh, yeah, three or four more times. And, um, you know, even as a kid, each time you move, at least this is the effect it had on me, there, I was very aware um, as a child of like an opportunity to reinvent myself. Nice. And, nice. and um, I think maybe because we were immigrants and even when you're an immigrant child, I was five and a half, so old enough to like be aware of, everything around me um you there's a kind of um adaptation (laughs) um skill vibe imperative that you kind of get used to and it's like you're adapting to the next part of your environment but you're also adapting to yourself and who you want to be and because in a new place no one knows you um i just remember as a kid like really being aware that in a new place no one will know me and i can carry some things with me and i can leave some things behind if i want to and i think humans are doing that all the time Yeah. yeah i love that i really like that and it makes sense and uh, it got me thinking about because what is what is the story that we want to tell, right? And and some of the ways in which I think about it is I look a lot at the way in which modernity mm-hmm. and postmodernity, but modernity um, robbed us of explicit ritual. So. Mm-hmm. So, for example, so, so uh, not ritual, like, robbed us of mythos is what I mean to say, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's like either the world was created in seven days in a fundamentalist truth kind of way, mm-hmm. or it's a scientific lie. Right. <laughs> like, the fact that as if our ancestors grew, thought, okay, if I actually go to that mountain, I'm going to visibly see Zeus 
throwing down thunder. Like our ancestors were sophisticated. Like they had, they understood the mythological, the, the which is a stem and the realm of story as a different reality, but a reality nevertheless, mm-hmm. right? And so I feel like what those stories have done, you pointed to already, is help us answer questions like how and why. Like, mm-hmm. how did we get here? Why are we here? Right? And like, how are we going to be? What is the best way to be here, given that in most of cases, they have faith apocalypses already, mm-hmm. right? Like, when mm-hmm. shit gets hard, <laughs> how are you going to be? Like, this is what the stories are telling us. Yeah. And, uh, and And so... When we lose that in modernity, mm-hmm. it gets replaced like by something that is could be somewhat helpful, but it's emptier, which is ideology, right? Uh-huh. So, so now I have this ideological way, right? Oftentimes containing, oftentimes containing an utopian future that mm-hmm. I can actually come make into reality. Um, where that I'm, it's actually trying to replace methods, yeah. mm-hmm. story, spirit, ritual, right? And in it, we are left with these spaces that are too often devoid mm-hmm. of joy, right? Where like I'm like, listen, I say to people a lot, I'm like. I had this friend and I love what they're trying to do. You know, they want to build a solidarity economy, mm-hmm. right? But I'm like, you really think, like, how many people are you going to get to come every week to make these economic decisions together? Like, when, when they can just hit one button on Amazon, like, the space has to have some joy. It has to have some right. human connection. It has to have a bigger story that is not just ideological, right? Because only the most hardcore, and we, you and I know them, right, <laughs> will keep showing up for 20 years, right? Even if there's no mythos in it. No, if, no, yeah, no. even if there's no fun. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting distinction between mythos and ideology. I think, um, um, I mean, where I'm at right now is I'm, I, 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 I resist dogma of any kind and I don't resist like patterns. You know, I seek patterns. I, I don't resist lessons. I like to think, Mm -hmm. but I really think that as you noted, binaries do not help us. They almost, I can't really think of one that helps us. Um, When you're in campaign mode and you need to put choices in front of people, it's either this or this, you know, it's either cop city or, you know, services that communities need in and around Atlanta. Um, I'm referring to the uh, Georgia plan to build this giant cop training um, uh, campus. Um, So, you know, in campaign mode, those kind of polarizations can be very useful because you need people actually to choose and you need to define the choice rather than letting your opposition or the system define the choice. Um, but most of life is not binary. You know, we have four seasons and they kind of meld into each other. It's not like there's a hard winter and a hard summer and 
you know, right. exactly the you know right. exact same time every year you shift. Um, nature does not work in binaries, and neither should we. <laughs> it seems to me like it's kind of um, basic, and so yeah, I I find myself resisting like this or that kind of thinking, and um, and I find that. In between, there's a lot there. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I wanna, I definitely wanna get into one of the big frames that you're working with. Um, in a second, I'm gonna leave people in suspense. Um, <laughs> but it's what inspired what inspired me to find to be like, okay, I have to talk to Rinko now. Um, but um, before I get to that, I have one more thing on story mm -hmm. that you might appreciate. I'm curious about your thoughts. So you were talking about this kind of natural thing in us that responds to it. Mm -hmm. It makes us both storytellers and make us like thirsty for them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I thought about a couple of things as you said it, which is there were there were no books for most of humanity. Right? There were no internet, no internet for most of humanity, um, right? Like, and we had to like somehow stories help us remember, right? Mm -hmm. Like that over like bullet points and facts, mm -hmm. and uh, and songs, right? So the songs tell the stories. Mm -hmm. The stories tell the stories, and the rituals tell the stories, right? Mm -hmm. We enact. Mm -hmm. And so what this brought me to, to think about is, I've been uh, following the thought of a guy called John Berveke recently. I think, I think he's one of the most important thinkers in the Western cultural tradition right now, mm -hmm. right? Uh, out of the University of Toronto, but lots of YouTube stuff. And like embodied right like not just a head guy mm -hmm. like beautiful human um and he was talking about different ways of knowing and like and he was talking about propositional and propositional is this place at which we like make our arguments right about what the facts are mm -hmm. right then he was talking about um procedural which is like how to do things then he was talking about perspectival, which is like, right now, I'm doing a podcast with you. So you are, this is foregrounded. How I do a podcast, our friendship, the nature of our conversation, and everything else on the background. Mm -hmm. right? Like I have the capacity to shift perspectives. In a bit, I'll be with Tuesday, and like my insane love for her will be <laughs> foregrounded, right? Um, uh, but, um, but then he finally gets to participatory knowing, mm -hmm. which is like where the the agent, you, and the arena, everything else around you are shaping each other, mm -hmm. right? and like, and it's like he he points to even like metaphors and like how many words are metaphors for something embodied, embodied mm -hmm. like understanding right mm -hmm. apprehending right mm -hmm. leaning into mm -hmm. right feeling open right mm -hmm. feeling like so there are all these yeah. 
So what I'm what I'm making sense of from what you're telling me is that there's something about stories that trigger our participatory knowing, right? Mm -hmm. They're not just like a bunch of ideas pulled together, mm -hmm. right? But in our mind, we can we in kind of losing ourselves in it. We are almost we like embody the participants, okay. right? Like yeah. or the archetypes that we want to be uh, or not be, yeah. Or what we contend with, you know? Yeah. Well, here's an interesting factoid on along those lines. Um, it turns out that when you're really super engaged in a story, you're reading a book or you're watching a movie or listening to music. Uh, when you're super engaged your body will go through the same uh, reactions that the protagonist is going through. So when you're watching a horror movie, why do you flinch? Nobody's coming out with an ax to get you. It's just a movie. Right. Um, but it's, it's involuntary. Like you don't have to agree that you have to tell your brain, Hey, we're going to like really identify with this protagonist. But when the story is skillfully told, that is the effect on yeah. or skillfully made. Um, it is an embodied effect. And anything that you experience in your body, it, like in multiple parts of your body, so, you know, your brain, certainly, your eyes, if you're looking at something, um, um, you know, your sweat glands, if you get nervous or anxious while you're watching, uh, you know, a thriller or... Uh, you laugh and then your, um, you know, lungs and mouth and um, depending on what kind of laugher you are, like lots of other parts of your body are involved. And and there's just no way that that cannot be more powerful than having only your um, linear, logical, sorting brain part engaged. So, um, and... You know, this does this. This is human and nature stuff. It it does not rely on ideology. <laughs> so, you know, I could be, I could have very, you know, Marxist radical ideas and still be, you know, still cry at the end of some film that's got, um, you know, that's like I don't know, individual poor person makes it, you know, by their own straps and all that kind of thing. I could still be very, very moved by that story and sucked into its moral, which is you're on your own. You'd better, you know, get it together. Um, uh, because the storytelling is so good. The quality That's is right. so good. So, uh, yeah, your, your body, um, your body knows what it wants as always. And it tells you things. And, um, that's true. And, and politics and social justice work as it is anywhere, you know, at the bank or at school. Thank you for the gift of your attention. If there's something here that resonates for you, something that feels true and good, think about a friend that you could share it with. We curate for each other. And that's the only way the good stuff spreads. I think it's, it's a good it's a good way to get into 
into the the heart of the conversation I've been dying to have with you. Uh, there is, and it, it, it merits knowing, as I mean, maybe even as a transition, that this is why dogmatic people have to be so rigid, right? If you ever, if you are either like a hyper woke movement fundamentalist or a Christian right person, like you need to create blocks so that hard barriers, so that you're not impacted by the natural, the natural kind of impetus in you to respond mm -hmm. to stories that you might not agree with. Mm -hmm. You have to be rigid, right? Um, and so a lot of this rigidity um, has shown up uh, for in my work around racial justice, right? Like, like, you know, Tuesday and I started a class called what should white people do? And uh -huh. the point of that class for us was to offer something mm -hmm. that was not as dogmatic, that was not like trying to guilt and shame people, mm -hmm. that was not offering people the 11 things they must do if they want to be an anti-racist, right? Like just like, just not wanting to be in that game, but knowing that racism is real, like, it, it, you know? Um, and so... And so you and I were sitting at Creative Change at Sundance last summer, being intentional about catching up in the middle of being with so many other people. And we started to talk about this. And you provoked me and moved me with this idea that we got to move beyond allyship, right? And you called allyship like, a very low threshold, an off-the-shelf answer, right? That one probably you can get the nine, the nine, the eleven or nine things you can do to be an ally. And you're like, you said something about friendship. What is friendship instead? Mm -hmm. And I want to hear about that. And one of the things I immediately hear is that there's something participatory in it, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so, how have you? What, tell me about this. Just like right. how did you come up with it? How are people receiving it? How yeah. is it moving? I am beyond excited about it. I love that. Um, it really came out of my work. So, you know, 30 years, maybe a little more now, I've put into trying to um, make racial justice solution take, solutions take hold and feminist you know, get, get things organized by feminist principles and um, you know, I've been fighting hard for a long time to make change, working hard. And after, um, you know, the last few years I went, I was at Race Forward, the last two were preparing for, um, you know, just before the 2016 election, um, coming to understand that Trump was going to win that election, watching him win that election. And then living out the aftermath, right, all the way through to the pandemic starting. And um, I think it was the combination of leaving a job I'd had for a long time and having space. And then, and then uh, when the pandemic hit, 
um, like thinking really hard, <laughs> having a lot of opportunity to reflect by myself um, alone. And what came to me kind of as I thought about the last few years, once I was in pandemic was um, that everywhere I go, I see people who, who crave deep connection. They, they know, um, you know, often intellectually, they know we need each other in order to win the bigger things that we can't win by ourselves. We need this community needs this other community needs this other community. Um, intellectually, they know that. And, um, and people are searching for effective frameworks for the like effective connection practice that will help all our work move forward. But there's so much fear. There's fear of betrayal. There's a ton of distrust. There's some of those rules that you're talking about, Gibran, are about making people prove that they are with you enough to get you to give them an assignment, get you to include them in something. Mm-hmm. Um, because I get it. Nobody wants to waste their time. Um, we've all had bad experiences with so-called friends and allies. Um, we've been used. We've been um, abandoned when it really counted. Like bad shit has happened to all of us. Um and it it has made us afraid, and then and some folks stepped into that breach and created some frameworks, frameworks around allyship. What does it mean to be a good ally? You know, and some of the things I really appreciate about what they did is, like, it, it did get established in that period that it's not the ally's job to like step in and save somebody or like do everything for them. It's paternalism and allyship are not, they don't go together. And, um, and I, I really appreciated that. And some of where I first experienced that framework and use was actually in queer spaces, queer movement, where um, people would ask, like, are you basically, are you queer or are you an ally? (laughs) You know? Um, So, so that I, I, um, I really, it's important to me to acknowledge the like good, high level, sophisticated, strategic intention that went into creating those materials and frameworks. Um, Thank you for saying that. Yeah. What I think though is that capitalism messes with all of our shit, takes it all, turns it into something we wouldn't necessarily recognize. And our our social justice movements, we operate in capitalism. This is capitalism that we're working in. Um, you know, some of us have developed less capitalistic ways of um, sustaining ourselves and our constituencies and our organizations, but capitalism is where we live. And what I feel like has happened over time with the allyship frame is that we become very consumerist about it. So the rigidity goes with this vibe that's like, you have to show up in exactly these ways, those 11 rules, or I, I really can't mess with you. Like I, I really just can't have much to do with you at all. And, um, 
you know, it's like, I like to joke that it's like we went to Costco and ordered an ally. And when they come with their own like personalities and thoughts and they're not robots, we're like, oh, but I, I ordered one that didn't expect to be thanked ever, didn't right. only did what I told them to do, never had their own ideas, um, you know, didn't try to mess around in the important bits like strategy, but, you know, were there for whatever we needed. And um, this one seems to want things, so I want to give them back, you know, or this one seems to like have ideas, I want to give them back. This one offended me, um, got to give them back. And um, I don't think that's a good relationship, a relationship okay. in, one, in which one party expects never to um, uh, be consulted about anything, uh, asked for their input um thanked like i just it's basic human interaction to like thank somebody who uh does something even if you asked them to do it and expected them to do it if they do it well we say thank you like it's not that big a deal you know um so i'm i'm sitting in my like apartment in new york at that time and someone actually asked me to do a session um on leadership, like important things for leaders to think about or know now. And I decided to do it on the role of friendship in making social change. And, um, and I started to ponder and reflect on, on the role of friendship, not as a replacement for allyship, but maybe as a supplement that um, I feel like actually enables the deep, the, the deepest connections we can make and, um, the kind we need to make to be, um, to be a unified set of movements. My dream is one movement, like not 50 movements and an alliance, but one movement that has lots of different goals and constituencies involved in it um, and that is prepared to stand up for those constituencies and goals because they are our constituencies and goals. The, the, the limitation of allyship is we're not in it together. Right. There's a suffering and fighting partner and there's an enabling and uh, empowering. Some, some folks like that word. I hate it. I don't think anybody ever needs empowerment we all have innate power the the trick is to make the conditions where we feel able to exercise that power individually and collectively so those are the limitations of those are like the sticky movement organizing leadership um how do we tell people what to do uh problems that i was trying to deal with and once I started researching, I became pretty convinced. I became convinced quite quickly that actually friendship has always been a core, fundamental, foundational driver of social change. And um, we don't acknowledge that at all as a movement. No one talks. I mean, we all talk about like my friends here and my friends there. And there's the joke about like um, fake friends, you know, my black friend, my Indian friend that my, you know, queer friend, my trans friend who, who 
racist and transphobic and homophobic people will pull up to justify their homophobia, you know, their regressive ideas. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about what I think of as just friendships, friendships that are um, marked by, you know, enjoyment, people like each other and enjoy being together um, by commonality, like we like to actually do or reciprocity, we do things for each other, we, um, we, yeah, we will do each other favors, reciprocity. Um, but the third element of just friendship, in my mind, is that we share a common concern for the world and a common project in improving it, changing it. So good friends make good works and good works make better friends and sometimes, you know, good friends, new friends. So I just started reading about like different sets of friends. Um, I found a lot in W.E.B. Du Bois and Jane Addams's friendship and their friendship actually um, points to a movement theme, which is that mutual aid Friends in community, helping each other out so that the entire community could lift up out of whatever they needed to lift up out of, that is common to every single one of our communities, white immigrant communities in this country, um, indigenous communities that formed, uh, you know, urban Indian centers um, to help each other survive and thrive. Um, after conquest, um, yeah, after conquest, uh, black communities before, uh, yeah, before, during, and after slavery. Um, so Du Bois and Adams, Jane Adams started settlement houses. Du Bois start is basically the, um, first sociologist to like invented sociology. And, uh, the two of them started the NAACP with Du Bois, um, uh, I mean, them and other people as well, but they were two of the initial board members. Du Bois um, founded the Crisis Magazine. Uh, so, you know, their friendship, one of the uh, most moving ones to me is between Martin Luther King and Thich Nhat Hanh, um, someone you and I have both um, learned from and followed. And their friendship is interesting because the power dynamics are complicated. So mm-hmm. they became friends while King was a civil rights leader, um, was on his way to winning the Nobel Prize, if not having won it already, American. And the U.S. was at war in Vietnam, and Thich Nhat Hanh was a Vietnamese uh, Buddhist priest committed to peace, trying to... Um, uh, like one of the things he did was create a, a neutral zone in Vietnam where North and South Vietnamese people could go and be. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh wrote an open letter to Martin Luther King saying, I appreciate your resistance to the war on behalf of Black Americans. That's really important. Could you include Vietnamese people in your... Um, in your narrative and in your intervention around the war, we're really suffering and we need your help. And that, you know, then they became friends. They met up in um, international spaces. Um, The 
that that relationship is really, really shaped King's Beyond Vietnam speech, which is the big speech that really, um, I mean, he'd been working against Vietnam, but Beyond Vietnam made him an anti-militarist, you know, mm-hmm. put his stake in the ground around war, not just because black soldiers would, you know, die and suffer and then face discrimination when they came back, but because the people um, in the, um, the people in the other country would also die and suffer and um, it would feed their oppression. So that's just like, I just don't think that speech would have been that speech if um, King hadn't been willing to let Thich Nhat Hanh influence him and the rest of Thich Nhat Hanh's life after King was assassinated um, and his commitment to beloved community, that would not have been the That's case. amazing. Had That's a beautiful story. That friendship. What a wonderful um, thing to share. Thank you. Yeah, and so everywhere I looked and as I started asking people and looking into my own life, I find these very meaningful friendships, often across lines of power, that folks had to really, like, work to build um and i i think we should pay more attention to them and to it <laughs> that is just that's remarkable give me a second i'm actually just putting my shoe on uh-huh <laughs> that's why i'm moving uh, i'm gonna take that in years <laughs> but uh the uh the i got so much so much so much and i Maybe want to give you a little bit of my personal story background. Yeah, great. So in in sixth grade, which is interesting because my son is about to be in sixth grade, mm-hmm. and they say you can remember your traumatic experiences, right? When when you see your kids go, enter that age, and that, not that I ever forgot, but that's when we moved to the mainland, United States, and. I was old enough to know mm-hmm. I didn't want to leave. I was old enough to know I had a great life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I loved Puerto Rico. I loved my friends and I loved my life. Mm-hmm. Something was being done to me, right? And it was. And it was also the age at which I became a person of color. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a pretty racist place, you know? Pretty much right away being seen as less than, um, Mm -hmm. as even dangerous. I was hauled to a police station at the age of 12. Mm -hmm. I mean, what do you do to a 12-year-old kid in a police station, right? It's just like, you can only do that if you dehumanize people. Mm -hmm. But I missed my friends. And on my last day of school... I was brought before the auditorium and my friends sang me a friendship song. And everybody cried their way through it. And I say that from that day on, friendship became a core value in my life, like a a life-defining idea and practice. Mm -hmm. And I often joke that one day I'll finally start a, I used to say church, and I'll be more of a congregation to be more inclusive. And it will be called the Congregation of Co-Evolution Through Friendship. Mm-hmm. Right? 
So that's that's how important this this idea is to me. And I am moved by your words in so many ways. One of which is one of which is in the Allies story, we're spending a lot of that time telling them what to do mm-hmm. and how to show up. In the friendship story, there might be some of that, like, hey, this is what a good friend looks like. Um, but it implies your co-participation. It implies you're making a choice to take this person who belongs to a group mm-hmm. that has harmed you over and over again, that might be ignorant of your experience, but whose heart actually wants to meet you, right? Mm-hmm. And and be in friendship enough with them to stick it out as they find their way, right? And uh, and 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 I think any story that lays the responsibility on you mm-hmm. is a story that makes you the agent with power, right? Yes. And it also helps you become a better human. So mm-hmm. I love what you were talking about being in capitalism and and movements being split and all having to be the coalition of this and that. And like, um, uh, Tuesday was on a call the other day and somebody was like introduced as a, as a Canadian who was born and as an Israeli Canadian who is this, 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 right? And like, it's like this idea that you have to start every, every sentence with as by asserting the nuances of your identity, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So it just—it's like completely splitting. And what pe- we need to understand is that the industrial age, right, which is where the extraction happens, right, where like where we we extract from the air so exponentially that we are actively robbing from our from our descendants, right? Which is counter-revolutionary. Like mm-hmm. we're still in the future at, a, at an aggressive rate. Mm-hmm. It depends on the compartmentalization of life, mm-hmm. right? It has to silo things, right? In order to measure them and grab them. There's a hole that we live in. And that's why like our medicine is compartmentalized, right? I, I, like our movements are compartmentalized. Our work people... When I work with organizations, everything is in a silo, right? It's just, this is why people are trying to, a lot of men, right, are trying to be like the manager or the worker in the office and then still like in an, in an archaic way, the head of the household at home. And then like you do spirituality in this other corner of your life, right? It's all, and so so when you are in friendship with someone, Right? You do more of these things together, right? It's like right. what you're saying about it's like about the integration of life, right? So mm-hmm. many movements, so many movements are started by crews, you know? Like like I I love this story in like the this beautiful biography of Van Gogh, mm-hmm. right? Where Van Gogh always tortured coming into art, and he is working in the style of the Dutch masters, which is kind of shadows and darkness, right? And then his brother 
invites him to Paris, and he sees the impressionist for the first time. And you can imagine, it must be like, it must have been like taking acid for the first time, right? It's like, like, and he is just so baffled, right? And like, he just grunts around the city like a madman in tears because then he becomes one of the great impressionists. But those people are a crew influencing each other. Right, fighting and arguing with each other. Like, that is a big part of friendship, you know? I think if I was to say a couple of quick things before passing the microphone back to my actual guest, <laughs> um, it's, um, it's like uh, I have this concern, right, with reclaiming our humanity. And, you know, I often talk about the, the lawn sign that says in this house, we believe in love, we, we believe in science. And like the last sentence is like, we believe in kindness. And I'm like, that's the one that seems to be practiced least. It's like the affirmation of the beliefs, right? But like, and I'm like, I, I want to come back to kindness. I want to come back to compassion. I want to come back to remembering our humanity which is what I consider actually awakening, which is different from awakening. And, and, and that I am convinced that the way there is a process, is in relationship. It's a process that a teacher I know who's actually about to pass, but a wonderful teacher, Patricia Albert, she started a practice called mutual awakening practice, where you're no longer just meditating by yourself. I am. I am in deep, beautiful relationships with these teachers called um, Elizabeth DeBolt, whose feminist rating you might know, and Thomas, Thomas Steinberg, who talk about emergence consciousness dialogue, right? Like emergent consciousness, like where you and I are talking, but what we're tr trying to do is tune in to what the space between us actually wants to say, getting ourselves out of the way. So all of these things, and even my facilitation work, Right? It works best. Like, my goal is for people to build relationships that are far going to outlast the event or their organizational affiliation. And that there are degrees of friendship. Like, I consider you my friend. We don't talk every month. You know what I mean? Like, we catch up and, like, there's this mutual appreciation and care for each other. And when we talk, we trust each other enough to talk about intimate, personal things that you're not going to share with everybody else that I'm not going to just start talking about here in the podcast, right? And there's this contours to the to friendship that that you might have bandwidth for this circle of close ones that you're nurturing all the time, but you have space in your heart for this broader circle of people, right? But the, the relationship is not transactional. Right. Uh, I think that's key. The relationship is not transactional. And yes, like you and I don't see each other a lot. We don't check in that often. Um, but I know if I really needed you, Gibran, you would do what I needed you to do. And I know you well enough to be able to think of like things that only you could help me with. Um, and I assume that's, you know, kind of mutual. Like there are For things sure. that you might need, you would call me and I would do it. Um, you know, I think the 
the thing is, as I've gotten older and as the challenges to making real change become more and more clear to me, like, you know, when you've been in the work five years, you see some of the challenges, but if you've won anything in those five years, like winning is kind of part of your picture of how this goes. So over 30 or 35 years, more things enter that picture. And I find myself now looking less for what is different about all of us and more for what we have in common, what we want in common, what we want. And there are some things we all want. We all want freedom. We all want control over our bodies. We all want to be able to um, take care of and be with our communities and families. Um, We all want meaningful work, whether um, paid or unpaid, like meaningful work and pay doesn't have they're not together, uh, but we all want meaningful work. And, um, you know, like, I think we all kind of like living on the earth. <laughs> like, right. that in common, you know, so there's that. And something Barbara Smith taught me, Barbara Smith, who is, um, you know, really one of the leading lights of um, third wave feminism um, and Uh, feminisms of color um, and of intersectionality before that word um, was a word, but, you know, a Barbara is a theorist and an activist on how to um, solve a problem for everybody, how to solve a problem for um, not just the people you know the best and who are closest to you, but just by looking around at who else might be experiencing that problem maybe in the same way, maybe in different ways. Um, I think she's just really um, skilled at that. And one thing Barbara said to me recently is you have to be able to look at systems honestly and rigorously and, um, you know, analyze systems. And then you have to be able to look at individuals as themselves. You have to be able to do both, like understand the system you're in and how it works and understand the individual as an individual. So, and maybe you'll get along and find common cause and do things with that individual. Maybe you won't, but you, you can't judge the individual as though they are the system. You have to judge them as human beings because that's what they are so um so i really appreciate that and i i think that's like a discernment thing and that's where you know rigidity and um difficult feelings come come in because um there are so many people who wouldn't be in the movement if the first friend hadn't recruited them and that first friend hadn't been um, kind about the things they didn't know, you know, the words they didn't have yet, the identities they hadn't explored, the education they hadn't accessed. Um, there would be very, very few people <laughs> in our organizations and movements right. if, um, if there hadn't been friendly recruiters um, who were good at those things uh, and inviting participation. And, you know, I want to also say about guilt and shame, that actually does work for some people. You know, some people need a hard push because 
their um their environment or uh you know because their environment has really reinforced the wrong thing for many yeah. years or yeah. because um you know they're not used to being challenged and uh some folks really need that so i i i really try not to um dismiss anybody who's trying to help us all do better um and i think most people when they get the hard push um many people decide to stop at that point many people can't actually take the guilt and remorse and shame hard push um it it won't take them take them to the next step yeah. so i just want us to have a range of like a relationship options <laughs> um and be be open to um going as deep as we might be able to yeah 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 i want to honor what you're saying i think sometimes my my stand i just get so put off by it um but i do get it i do get how i myself have come to some of the most important transformations in my life when i have literally brought shame upon myself to my behaviors you know yeah. And, uh, you know, and one time, like one of the major, major, most transformational breakdowns in my life, I remember having like, like the experience, you know how they say like your life flashes before your eyes. It wasn't exactly my life, but it was all of the times mm -hmm. in which people in my life, like in this, I'm going to say, I'm going to say like women in my life were being like, dude, like. You're being really patriarchal right now. Mm -hmm. And in my head, because I had a feminist ideology, right. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a fucking feminist. Like, I used to be active Catholic, and I'm not even in that anymore. Like, You know from <laughs> patriarchy, right? <laughs> right, exactly. And so, and so then, 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 like, bad things, then I, then I made bad mistakes, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, people try to tell me, right? And, and, um, and so then the question then is, so I think as a sometimes that kind of shakeout is necessary. Ideally, before you fuck up, fuck up, or but um, and the stakes are so low. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's just where you where it becomes an ongoing thing and an ongoing posture. Like there's definitely a personality type, right? Because mm -hmm. I do a lot of healing work now, right? That is a sucker for it you know what i mean like there is like a type of white person a type of uh, man that that they're actually working out some like old parent shit right and they, they they're subconsciously appreciating that somebody's reminding them of how much they suck because it confirms i believe on themselves and like that's so, so it is more nuanced than saying they're saying, well, th thank you. Thank you for inviting Nuance. Um, yeah. It wouldn't have worked on me when I was 17 and got recruited to my first action. And I think my friends who recruited me had the good judgment to know that it probably wouldn't work on me. Um, and it, But it wasn't like they made a deliberate choice. I was I, The first activist thing I ever did was go to a racial justice rally on my campus that my friends Yuko and Valerie told me about the night before and told me to go to the night before. 
And, um, and I had never done anything remotely political and I had avoided most race spaces actually, um, up until then. And, uh, but they were both women of color and we were friends. I mean, I did always have friends of color, (laughs) so you can't avoid race completely if you have friends of color. And, um, and, uh, they, they, I mean, I guess they did say in that conversation, Rinku, you're not a girl anymore. You're a woman now and you're not a minority. You're a person of color. They, so that was the hard push, but their manner was so, um, I just never doubted that they loved me, you know, while they were telling me who I was supposed to be. And Later, they were like, oh, how self-righteous of us trying to tell you who you're supposed to be. And mm-hmm. that's true, but I kind of need a little push at that moment mm-hmm. in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, so your friends often know. And I the, just the last thing I want to say, because you mentioned crews, I do think in U.S. social movements that a lot of strategy gets developed by cohorts of friends. And I think if we could be more honest about that and more transparent about which friends and which crew and its its assets and limitations and what other crews of friends they could hook up with, Mm -hmm. I think there would be, it might help us um, be more direct about addressing power within the movement. That's good. Yeah. That's um, yeah. Yeah, because it's what's happening. It's what's actually happening. You know, I that was a major shift in my facilitation work too. And I'm like, all of the interesting conversations are happening around the fire. Oftentimes people are getting high, you know, like having drinks. And and like that's what they're bringing out to their home bases and to the other spaces, like the provocations there. So I'm like, how do we make a lot of room for that here, you know, for for that experience where, like, the, if, if most of the magic is happening in between the sessions, then how how do we make the sessions more like what's happening in between, you know? It's a, but yeah. to be honest and to be honest about who you're talking to, who your people are, I think I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to. I'm going to move us towards the close. So a couple of things I have, two more questions to ask that are kind of questions I ask in the podcast, and then give you an opportunity for anything else that you that might have been left unsaid, and to say also like, feel your body. You mm-hmm. know when you are in relationship with somebody, like know how you feel. Mm-hmm. That that's what's going to tell you. Right. Mm-hmm. There's something about truth, even if it's hard to hear, that if you're paying attention to your body, there's a layer of relief mm-hmm. in it. Definitely. There's a way in which the feedback is coming with a measure of acceptance. Like I remember learning from one of my mentors, um, and I use it so much in my coaching now. He was the best at giving feedback that I, anybody I knew, which is why he was a master mm-hmm. at, at coaching and, and facilitating. And I knew that he could give me feedback, sometimes in front of people, which was even more awkward. It was never about him. Usually when we're giving somebody feedback, 
it's because they're pissing you off somehow. Mm -hmm. right? But when we can be like, you're hurting yourself with this behavior, right? Like I mean it, right? Because I'm thinking about a friend who I actually like had a formal, it sounds ridiculous, but a formal unfriending with, mm -hmm. breakup, with friendship breakup, mainly because we were going to continue to exist in the same spaces and we needed to negotiate how we were going to show, how we were going to talk about what was happening between us. Mm -hmm. We were, you know, we were very close, but like, she would tell the story differently. But what I felt was like, I was being constantly judged by righteousness, mm -hmm. you know? And even like when I had made a mistake, like there was a dogmatic way in which I had to address it. And like, I felt like a pressure Mm -hmm. to like deal with my personal life a certain way because it was the righteous way and like uh, and did you're supposed to be like one of my closest and dearest you know and like that didn't feel like love and care you know it felt like enforce enforcing you know and so like your body and your heart tell you when something's off and mm -hmm. sometimes you're getting into it because some old childhood shit you know mm -hmm. what i mean yeah. Like I often say, I grew up in a fundamentalist community and I ended up in corners of the social movement that are behave just like fundamentalist com religious communities, you know? We can behave badly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, were you going to say something before I asked you my, my, my closing questions? You, you also have time after. No, I don't. I don't think so. Yeah. Okay. So the first question I like to ask, and it, 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 it just it demands your consent because I'll invite you into a little time traveling. Okay. And the time travel is to 20 years from now. And uh, you meet yourself 20, as you have become 20 years from now. You've won some things. You've lost some things. You've made some personal changes that you've try to make and some of your personal foibles continue to limit you, you know, like the human experience, but enough time for a new generation to come into being. And I don't want you to describe her to me when you can keep that to yourself, but I do wonder what she would say to you if she time traveled from there to here. What what would she want to impart on you? What would older, wiser you say to you? Honestly, I think she would say just relax, <laughs> like <laughs> chill, chill out, um, mm -hmm. get some sleep, go for a walk, um, enjoy life, and. Yeah. I mean, work and life are very intertwined for me. You know, I, um, I try to have some boundaries on work, work, you know, the official parts of work, but I am a person who's concerned with making the world better in certain ways. It's an, it's a, it's an obsessive concern. It's, it's, um, it's not that there isn't anything else, but that's, always at the front and um and yet sleep and and yet 
and yet I think I think she'd say like it's not that serious you know and I, I she'd be like do what you can and but remember you're just one little speck yeah. of stardust in this universe and so if you need to sleep go to bed I say that's beautiful I love her already um the uh the uh hopefully we will have a hang at 20 years <laughs> right <ago>. yes <laughs> um, but um one thing you said and asked my last question reminds me of the title of a book of essays on indigenous perspective on the climate movement that is titled we are in the middle of forever mm-hmm. and that already changes like like how you live in order to make things right it's like this is your one wild and precious life you know mm-hmm. and it yes life will demand sacrifice yes life will often force it upon you great suffering you know uh yes we want to stand for those who suffer but we are in the middle of forever and sometimes learning how to be a full human being mm-hmm. is the biggest gift that we can share with the people around us and with the world itself um so the last question i ask of the powerful women that come on this show in a world where patriarchy and its insanity have hurt women forever but like me too here in the western world like just kind of exposed it right to to all of us that didn't want to see it or want to talk about it i wanted to and um yeah i mentioned the betterment project at the beginning of this call and mm-hmm. it's a passionate commitment of mine um as somebody that has caused harm you know mm-hmm. and so the question i ask the powerful women such as yourself is what should men do if we want to be what better men do? Oh. if we want to be better ah um should men do? Hmm. Um, the first thing that really comes to mind actually is listen. Like mm-hmm. men just talk so much. It's like really just like if you could just shut up for a minute and like get into listening posture and be more self-aware of the like talky space that you're taking up. That would be good. Men are not the only people who talk a lot. I sometimes have to like tell myself, like extroverts often talk a lot too. Um, but I find the male extrovert can really go on. <laughs> and and I've actually watched men on occasion like resist um, all efforts by women to s- get them to stop talking, like to no avail. So, you know, if somebody's like flagging, like just, you could just wrap that thought up, that sentence and, um, and yeah, talk less. Listen Beautiful. more. <laughs> Great. Great. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Sometimes I've been doing in, um, before like a big and deep retreat where like we're going to go where it's going to be intense. Yeah. I'll gather the men ahead of time. First of all, if I if I, I let curate, them talk to each other, systems. it's like this happens. Um, 
like I did the evolution and leadership workshop this year, and for the first time we had an equal number of of because uh, usually the best thing to do is make a majority women or non-binary people, you know. But this was the event, and I so then I was like, let's show up, let's show up differently, you know, like let's be aware. I'm not saying don't talk. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying maybe you wait a couple of beats mm -hmm. before you jump in. Mm -hmm. you know? Hey, can I add one thing to this advice? Actually, please, please, I think please. a lot of your listeners are on conference panels and things. So if you're a man and you find yourself on a panel where all the other people are women, you don't have to say it's so awesome to be on this panel full of women. Like that should be the norm and pointing it out is like weird you know like i've experienced that multiple times with the single man who's on whatever panel i'm on um and like we don't need a reminder of how unusual it is to hear from women when audience is about to hear from women um yeah and if you're a man who's being invited to talk on an all-male panel like just don't do that right right i'm just writing this down an all male panel that's about something other than men, for example. <laughs> right, right, right. I love it. I like it. Yeah, just on principle, don't do it. I love it. Thanks for giving me a chance to get a couple of pet peeves out. That's yeah, no, this is important. All of them are worth all well, because like if you get if you I'm sorry. It's worth all the time. Yeah, because it's like um if you just go meta, yeah. It's always good to be specific. Like this is what it looks like when you're doing that. Yeah. You know, like it's just helpful, especially for men who, who don't want to hear it. So we get dumber <laughs> as the advice comes, you know. Uh, thank you. I, 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 I am paying attention to the advice myself. And uh, is there anything else you want us to know about where to find you? Yeah, Um Sign up on our email list. We have wonderful programs and webinars and just fun stuff to do. Our newsletter is awesome and, you know, both cute and useful. So, um, yeah, sign up on our email list at narrativeinitiative.org and follow me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Rinku Writes. Beautiful. Awesome. What a privilege to be with you. Same. This was a phenomenal conversation. Signal versus noise. There's so much competing for our attention. And I am so glad that you stayed with us through the end of the podcast. It should mean that you're finding something meaningful here. Hopefully, something worth sharing. And so I'm asking again that you think of somebody who would be touched by this conversation. Who wants to be a part of it some way. It is a decentralized conversation. It is a way in which we're changing ourselves by leaning in towards each other in places like this and in the exchange of these ideas. So who's a person or two that will be specially moved by what you've heard here today? Send them a text, an email. Let them know we're here. We are not trying to reach everybody, but we want to reach the right people. We want to keep having this decentralized conversation. We want to keep working on getting right to the edge of the evolution of consciousness and culture to see what we find here together. Thank you again.
for being a part of this. Liking the podcast helps. Subscribing is definitely a good thing. Feedback is always welcomed. Stay in touch.